Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Schmidt. We're here with Aaron Coe. It's June 26, 2023. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University in McMinnville. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, the first question to get things rolling is why wine? Well, let's see. That is quite a story. Um, you know, it really kind of started off, I guess, back in the, back in the 90s. Um, I, I I was very interested in, in in you know I had friends and family a lot of family members actually that were um, involved in the restaurant business um, so I just kind of I grew I grew up in yeah so this is even before the nineties this goes back until like I I, I started uh, actually in the back of the house washing dishes in nineteen eighty six for three fifty an hour and that was the minimum wage back then. Luckily, it was at a uh, it was at a ski resort, so I was able to uh, ski for free. So that was a good benefit. Um, but uh, you know, that just kind of led to I did that as I was you know very young. I was only like 15 at the time, um, and then I decided I was going to maybe perhaps I had some family members that uh, were in the military and they flew and they were pilots, and so I thought well maybe I'll I'll go that route. Um, so I thought about that. Uh, but then just some things took place, you know, during high school that just kind of made me realize I didn't really want to do that. Um, so I kind of fell back into uh, the restaurant business, um, just feeling like that was just like a comfort, like a security blanket for me. And so, um, you know, I, I worked at several restaurants for a long time, and it wasn't really, as far as like the wine thing, it kind of, before I got into fine dining, uh, I actually it was a bottle of Domaine Duren that actually that completely changed my life and and altered the course of, of you know wh- who I am and what I what I've become today. Um, I was just at a restaurant and, and this was in Boise, Idaho, which is my hometown, and uh, and so I I was out to dinner and on a on a date and I was like, very excited about it, so I wanted to kind of impress this date. And I uh, got a, what was a pretty expensive bottle of wine at the time for me. And then uh, I tried it. and It was just like ethereal. It was like this in this magic moment of like, wow, this like I'd never had any anything like that before. I'd never had wine like that before. So um, it kind of just opened up my whole universe and it just made me start to think like, huh, well, what is this? What's 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 really going on? And and that led me in, into working into fine dining and. Um, so I just kind of worked my way up the ranks and, and uh, worked at some really high-end places. Uh, one of them uh, being a place called Desert Sage in Boise, Idaho. And it was extraordinary. I helped them open up the restaurant in uh, December of 1996. And uh, I was the head captain there for five years uh, prior to, um, to moving here. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I just... Uh, I learned more. I cut my teeth kind of at that restaurant, learning a lot about wine. Um, and then, if I could, I guess um, I think the, the catalyst. Originally, I was going to move here because I wanted to go to art school, 
And so my, my girlfriend at the time was a photographer and, and I paint. Um, and so we were going to go to, to um, P, PNCA together, but 9-11 uh, happened at that exact moment. And I ended up getting a job at a restaurant in uh, Portland called Genoa. And it was a pretty well-known uh, restaurant. And um, so I was very fortunate to, to have arrived there. Um, and that was just a really interesting series of events that, uh, that led to that. But um, yeah, I ended up uh, just starting off, you know, just kind of a, a basic server there. Um, I, I ended up working there for seven years and, and uh, ran the wine program at Genoa for the last two years of that. So um, that took me to Italy. And that first trip to Italy really changed my life. Um, at that point, I, I realized maybe it was time to take a break from the restaurant business and maybe and maybe pursue some career in wine. Start to sort of you know gravitate towards that a little bit more. And so that's uh, that's what I did. I I came back from my trip. I spent a month um, by myself in Italy, and um, basically just uh, traveled from from winery to winery to winery from all the way from Piedmont until I finally got to Rome and then just flew out of Rome. And that was pretty epic. So I uh, decided, you know, I got back to the restaurant and everyone was just, you know, assumed that I, that I was just going to continue to stay there and be the psalm there and, and blah, blah, blah. But I wanted to, to move more, get deeper into the wine world. Um, but I started, before I left the restaurant, um, I was fortunate enough to meet this uh, gentleman that he was actually a server that I worked with. His name was John Adam. And um, John was like a server at a, at a really famous restaurant in, in Portland called Cafe des Amis. Back in the day, he was a server there for like 14 years. But um, he was really good friends with uh, a certain, um, a certain a woman named Joan Erath. And so he said, you know, Joan has this husband, Dick, and he's a, he's a winemaker and was wondering if maybe you'd be interested in going and checking out his facility and helping out with Crush one of the years. So that was 2001. And that was the, my very first introduction that I ever, ever stepped foot onto, onto a winery. And, um, and so that was just completely mind blowing. Um, uh, so some of the first things I ever learned about winemaking, I didn't realize who he was. I didn't realize, I mean, I, I had learned about Domaine Duran because of my previous experience, of course, with the wine. And I'd done some basic, uh, you know, reading about, uh, about wine production, but I'd never ever had gleaned, like, from what was a wine god, um, you know, and just, he was amazing. And so, I, so some of my very first things I ever learned about winemaking was from Dick. Um, the first year that I did that, so it was all my time that I had off at the restaurant during harvest, during crush, I, I would just go straight out and work at the winery. So I did that the first year just for uh, free lunch and a few bottles of wine. And then, uh, and then the next uh, three years they, they paid me and, um, and that's when I really started to get into production. Um, so yeah, so I never went to wine school. Um, I, I thought about I thought about taking some classes, but I just I just learned in the trenches, and just learned from 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 different winemakers. Um, so that was very formative. 
uh, for me, and and I learned a, a lot from that. And and so so now I can fast forward a little bit to my time when I'm getting ready to to, to leave the restaurant. Um, so my decision was at the time to just w to work for my favorite distributor that I was buying wine from, uh, which was a, an outfit called Casa Bruno. And Casa Bruno, they're uh, both importer and distributor of Italian wines, and they have a very substantial uh, Willamette Valley book as well. So that's how, uh, from working with them, um, I did that for eight years. And um, that's how I got to meet people like Andrew Rich with, uh, with uh, Carlton Winemaker Studio. Um, that's how I got to meet Jerry Sass and, and to meet uh, um, Bill Holleran and, and uh, John Paul with Cameron and uh, just, uh, you know, it was really great to just learn about all these people and, and I was, I was, it was exciting to go down a new path um, to, to be in distribution and, and, and get out of the restaurant biz. But um, so yeah, so after doing that for many years, um, I became pretty good friends with uh, one of the producers I spoke of earlier, Bill um, Holleran. Um, he, at the time, had a winery uh, up on Stafford Hill, and so um, his winemaker, his his very first winemaker was actually um, uh, Jay Somers. So Jay, Jay was his winemaker. That's how Jay was introduced into the Valley before he started his Jay Christopher label, uh, was the winemaker with Holleran. And so, his assistant his was named Mark Lagasse, and Mark, that's, that's who I've learned the most about winemaking from. He was really fantastic, and, and I gleaned as much information as I could from him, and, and he taught me about, you know, he held my hand, taught me, what, oh, no, you shouldn't probably do that, or, you know, uh, uh, that's, that would have, that's way, way too much sulfur, and, you know, things like that. So there's little things that he just made sure I didn't screw it up too bad. And, um, and so I learned more and more. Um, so then I decided to go ahead and pull the trigger, do my very first vintage um, in 2010. And also because I was working with Casa Bruno, there was a, there was a, uh, a gentleman who, um, he had Cavatappi wine. I don't know if you're familiar with Cavatappi. Um, but we were selling his wine. And so I, I called him up and I said, do you think there's any way, I knew that he was buying fruit from, um, he was buying fruit out in, in Columbia Valley and it was a pretty well-known vineyard. And so I asked him, do you think that there's any possibility I might be able to get a couple of tons? And, um, and it was, so the, the, the grower was Dick Boucher and he ended up being, uh, he's one of the very you know, well-known growers out in Washington. And, um, and it's relatively difficult to get his fruit, but um, because of my, my connection with Cavatappi, I was, uh, from selling his wine, I was able to, be, to, to get some. So that started it. And uh, my first vintage was, I also sold a wine called Domaine Pouillon, and uh, that was in the book as well. And so Alexis Pouillon and, and his wife, Juliette, um, they were gracious enough to let me use their facility. I gave them free labor and in exchange for letting, letting me use their equipment. And so it wasn't even really like a custom crush situation. I just was able to, yeah, they just kind of let me in the door. So that was fun. And I just made six barrels. That was my very first. And I decided um, that, I, I mean, my, my love is Nebbiolo. I really, really love Nebbiolo. I, Piedmont was amazing to me, like that's, 
there will be a little part of my heart in 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 uh, Piedmont forever. But um, it's really really difficult to find varietally correct Nebbiolo in in the states. I think, um, but you can find pretty good Sangiovese, and uh, so that's that's why I thought maybe uh, maybe I'll, I'll I'll try my hand at Sangiovese. So that's of course the grape they used to make Chianti in Tuscany and. Um, yeah, so I got enough to make six barrels of Sangiovese from Dick Boucher's vineyard, and that's how it all started. And uh, they're out in Lyle. I don't know if you know Domaine Pouillons. This is out by kind of core cellars in that area. Yeah, so they're they're up in the hills there in Lyle, Washington. So I was, you know, I was making the the trip back and forth, you know, to punch down every day and and whatnot and. Uh, but it was it was it was pretty fun. It was a it was a great experience, and I knew that I was hooked for sure. Um, so that was 2010. Pretty light vintage. Uh, I remember my alcohol was only 12.2, which is extraordinarily low. You know, it's pretty low for Washington fruit. Um, so yeah, it was very light. Um, but I, I uh, then decided, because of my connection and friendship with, with Mark Lagasse, that I would go back uh, to, I didn't want to, basically it just came down to not wanting to drive all the way out to Lyle every day and back. Um, and so since they were in Stafford Hill and West Lynn, that was a lot easier of a drive. So <clears throat> I approached uh, Bill Holleran and, and my friend Mark and said, do you think that I can make a little bit of wine with you guys? If I, you know, gave you free labor, try to pitch the same, the same idea, and um, and they they went for it, and so I made wine with them until 2016, and um, and that that was very formative for me, and I got myself up to I'm still not making a ton, I'm still only producing about 500 cases, um, you know, but now I'm making 15, 16 barrels, and. Um, and let's see, I started getting a little bit of recognition with it in 2012. I entered it into um, Oregon uh, Northwest Food and Wine Festival and won gold with my wine. And so that was, that was great. And that kind of started getting, it got me on the radar a little bit. And, um, and then 13 was pretty good, and then and then you know people started noticing, and so I was starting to get it out into places, and and I was selling into restaurants, and then you know places like Blue Hour were picking it up, and Blue Hour did it by the glass for like almost three years, um, so I was just starting to get some 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 uh, attention, you know, which was really great. But I think it wasn't until just recently with the article with with uh, Michael Alberti that he we sat down and he checked out the wine and. And uh, was like, you know, you're doing something pretty cool here, and 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 kind of old school. And old school is that that's that's the thing. Like I'm, I'm since I, I was I lost my source with Dick Boucher in 2017. He uh, ended up selling to larger contracts, so the smaller guys were all making between 300 and 500 cases a year. Got got kicked out. Um, uh, but his fruit was amazing and I, and I missed it. But I was really lucky to stumble upon a grower in Walla Walla. And his name is Dan Thiessen and he has a, a place called um, Wagon Wrench Farms. And 
he's also a chef. He actually runs, um, not only does he run that farm and grow uh, all that fruit on his property, but he's also the executive chef of the Walla Walla uh, Steak Company. Very talented guy. I got my very first fruit from him. It just happened to be, I mean, I just, I, I was looking online, like where can I find some new fruit? And, um, and I just happened to stumble on him and I said, do you think I can get such and such tons this year? And he said, yes, and that's how it all started. And then Holleran had moved out to uh, Dundee, and so they, they, uh, th that was a little bit far for me to travel, and I decided to try to, I had a, a friend of mine in, in, in town, in Portland, and he was considering maybe doing some kind of an urban uh, situation, not too, you know, uh, different from like the Southeast Wine Collective. And so the name of his wine is Adega Northwest, and he's he's Portuguese, and he makes like Portuguese style stuff. And um, so he opened up a little place on like 17th and McLaughlin called Adega Northwest, and brought in five other winemakers. And so we op we almost kind of created our own little uh, you know Carlton winemaker studio, if you will, but in an urban environment. So um, we did we've been doing that since 2018. It's over by the Iron Fireman Collective Building. And uh, yeah, we actually have a tasting room going now, which is cool on just the weekends, but um, it's, it's tough with, with you know not really having a lot for the marketing and the advertising of it yet, but we're just like slowly getting there. But this is the year that, that I've really decided, I, maybe I think the catalyst for, for, for this decision was perhaps Michael Alberti's our, well, our friendship and knowing him and, and selling him wine to the storyteller back in the day, but just the fact that he wrote what he did and, and you know put my name out there, I mean, it completely evaporated my 2019 uh, vintage instantly. And um, so I was like, yeah, I think I really, I, I do want to try to make a go of it full time. So in order to do that, I'm, I'm keenly aware that that's going to require like you know, doubling my production. So that's, that's the goal this year. Um, yeah, so I've, I've, I've kind of always had it like you know, working at Genoa for all those years, working at Casa Bruno for all those years, you know, rubbing elbows with um, John Paul and, and Edek Rath and, and all these people, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's still kind of just been a bit of a hobby though, but I didn't want to, I, I just wanted to keep perfecting it and keep getting better at it and keep learning and just, um, and I think some of my experiences, I've, I've gone back to Italy s several more times um, throughout the years because of my connections with, with you know, working with Casa Bruno. And um, so I would just, I would just ask like winemakers and people I became friends with in Tuscany and in Umbria, and just say, you know, what do you do? Like, how do you, how do you get it, old world? How do you make? How do you? What is old world? You know, and I, and I realized fundamentally there's a huge um, amount of like terroir involved, obviously. Um, but there's also technique. There's also about what these people are doing in the in the in the vineyard and and, and what they do with the fruit. So I basically um, try my best, even using Walla Walla fruit, to do exactly the same things that they're doing, to try to to try to make something more older world. And uh, so it's kind of fun to like sometimes brown bag my wine and hang out with a couple of Psalm friends of mine and have them taste it and have them think for sure that it's from Italy when it's actually Washington fruit made in Oregon.
And so that's that's kind of fun. Covered a lot there. So I'm going to go back and ask some questions from, I'm going to go back a little ways. So sure. tell me about, you You mentioned the Domaine Drouin bottle that kind of opened your eyes yeah. to wine. So from that point, um, tell me about starting to learn wine and your own kind of personal wine education. How did you go about developing a palate and developing an understanding of sort of the world of wine? Um, I asked the owner of the restaurant that I worked at if I could be involved in the tastings. You know, I just figured that the best thing to do would just be just immerse myself into, into you know, going to different distributors' tastings. Um, uh, you know, opening up bottles at the at the restaurant and tasting stuff, um, and just trying to build like a a database. You know, like a kind of a mental Rolodex. You know, if you will. And and I was very I was pretty inexperienced that way back then, and so. You know, you just slowly kind of by tasting this and like, like, well, this is a little this way, this is a little that way. You can you know, kind of eventually feel like you can grasp it enough to, to connect the dots. Uh, but it takes a long time. It takes a long time of, of reading and, and tasting. And um, yeah, that's, that's, I think it's just, it's just immersing myself into it. Tell me about your, your fine dining experience a little bit, and especially as you got into the wine part of it. Uh, first of all, sort of a, developing sort of the wine and food pairing idea. Tell me about sort of coming to terms or coming to understanding of that, and then progressing into actually running a wine list. What what what, what were the steps along the way for you? Well, um, you know, I was fortunate enough just to get a job there because it's you know they everyone's worked there for at Genoa at that time for twenty plus years, and so there was almost never an opening there. <laughs> Someone literally had to die, um, but uh, it was. I got lucky enough to get my foot in the door, and um, and so a gentleman that was running the wine program at the time, his name was Michael Autry, and um, and he is actually David Autry's younger brother, and David um, makes uh, Westry wines, and so and I know that um, that him and his wife are very involved in IPNC and. Yeah, and so that's how I kind of I, I started to uh, again to to want to taste everything and show up at tastings. And Michael was pretty cool. He would have um, you know pre-shift meetings once in a while when he'd crack a couple bottles of wine and we would just like talk about them and and discuss it and you know analyze it and just just kind of. Uh, pick it apart and see what people thought and that that helped my palate develop um, and then as I kind of grew more comfortable into working in, into you know, that that space the famous chef you know Kathy Wims at that point she and the uh, old owner um, Carrie Debuse they decided to part ways um, she went on to open up Nostrana and her her entire empire and um, and but Genoa stayed open for for a while for another eight years, um, but I and I stayed on there as well. Um, and so I think yeah, I just I just kind of uh, wanted to learn as much as I could, uh, go to lots of people's tastings, um, and and then I kind of became I became friends with uh, the new wine buyer. Um, and I offered my my assistance. I said, do you think I could help you out? Um, I'll do anything you know you want me to do, and I'll haul boxes of wine around and help you organize the cellar and you know do whatever it takes. And 
And that was just on my own time for, for free. I just volunteered um, so that I could learn. And then when he decided to, to move on, um, I guess the owner, Carrie, thought that, that it was a no-brainer for me to just take it over. I still stayed a, uh, one of the main captains, but um, also took on the responsibility of running the wine. And what did that entail for you? What did you, what did you have to know to take over that role? Well, it meant, I mean, I was pretty green, really. I, I, this is the first time I'd ever run a, run a wine program, and it was Genoa. <laughs> so it was a, kind of a, a big deal. They had a huge inventory. You know, really, really old vintages of Prodotories and all kinds of things down in the cellar. It was just like a candy store. It was just, yeah, it was so much fun to just be down there. Um, but I, I just, I would uh, have a lot of, it was really the effort from a lot of reps from different distributors um, that really cut my teeth, like um, specifically Chris Davis. Uh, he was one of the best, is still one of the best wine uh, professionals that I know. And he left Casa Bruno and started a, a helped, helped start a, distrib a distribution company called uh, Estelle. And so Estelle's become very well known now. But yeah, he was great. I learned a lot from him. Um, a gentleman named Todd Bacon. He's been in the business forever, was with Young's for a long, long, long time. I guess they're now RNDC. Um, he was really fabulous. He, he probably, he knows, he, he's probably forgotten more about Italian wine than I know about Italian wine. He's uh, even, I'm, and, I, and I know quite a bit about it. He's very, very knowledgeable. So I learned a lot from him and guys like that. Um, and so, and, and a couple of, uh, yeah, there was, it was that and, and just going to a huge amount of tastings and just learning and just research and just, you know, constant knowledge. And just I just became a sponge and just tried to soak up as much as I could. Um, and that, I think, really ultimately helped me to become a better winemaker as well once I, I kind of learned what it was that I wanted to do. Before we get to that, I'm, I am curious about, you obviously, you took over, as you said, a well-established and a well-known wine, wine program. Um, was that more of a challenge, do you think, than building one from scratch? Was it more, was it more daunting to take one over? And what kind of stamp did you put on it while you were there? That's a good question. I, I think, I think in some ways it was a little easier to already have it done. I think like uh, a, a bulk of the of the really hard stuff had had you know blood, sweat, and tears had already been kind of put into it f for 40 years. Um, you know, so it was just it was kind of nice to just be handed the keys to the mansion, uh, and then I just got to you know walk around and 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 admire what everyone had done. But then there were some things that I thought you know, newer things that were coming along that it was really great to have all the old guard and have all the, you know, usual suspects, but I, I, I wanted to have some different things from, from you know, Sardinia and some interesting things from, from Puglia that, that I hadn't seen there and some different, um, you know, smaller production mom and pop places out of Piedmont that, that, that were becoming up like pretty well known or at least getting some attention, but they didn't have a spot on the list. And so it was kind of fun to, to, to put those in and, and just taste through different people's you know, portfolios and um, make the decision to, in some ways, kind of sculpt it a, a little teeny bit towards what I wanted it to, to, to look like. Uh, with, at the same time, honoring its tradition 
and honoring all of the amazing people that had became engaged in celebrated birthdays and and you know uh, had anniversaries and all the old people that have come to love what Genoa what it stood for um, so you know it was an interesting kind of um, dichotomy of um, honoring the old world and and trying to also at the same time um, put my stamp on it. So you talked about Casa Bruno a little bit. Uh, again, you, you obviously had a, you developed quite a bit of knowledge at that point of, 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 of the wine, of Italian wine uh, especially. Uh, what was the, that transition like, getting into distribution, and what was sort of your, what were the most enjoyable parts of, of the kind of the early years in distribution? Yeah, I really, um, I really loved, well, first of all, their book was amazing, so it was really fun to just you know get to learn it really intimately. But I just really loved going around um, to different accounts and building relationships with people. You know, I mean, there's so much wine out there that, that people are making, and there's so many different wineries, and there's just so it's but it's such a relationship-driven business, and so it was really fun to become you know really close to a lot of these, these accounts I had. And and I I had a really big territory too. I had like a bunch of of, of Portland. Um, I once in a, you know once in a while I had to go down even to Corvallis, uh, in Albany, and and then I would also once in a while go out to Hood River, but mostly I had the coast. So even though I lived in Portland, I had from Astoria to Newport. So I drove like thirty five hundred miles a month or something like that. So yeah, I drove a ton. Yeah, a lot of windshield time, and um, but I just became really, really close with uh, a lot of a lot of people, and and it was fun to like coming from the restaurant business and so many years in fine dining, and and also you know uh, running that wine program. It, it was fun to kind of see people in, in that journey and watch that evolution for them, and 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 help sculpt that you know evolution for them and be like, hey, I think maybe you're missing this and let's throw this in here. And so that was, that was, that was a lot of fun. And the camaraderie and just, um, uh, you know, I mean, these people I still am really good friends with, you know, we, we still go out to dinner. We, we you know, go, go travel places, do things together. I mean, I'm still really close to a lot of those people. Which works out great for me now that I'm making my own wine because now, I, now I've got guaranteed, uh, you know, buyers. I can go into those same places, and they're just like, "Oh yeah, we love your wine. We'll do it." What were the biggest learning? What was the biggest learning curve for distribution? Uh, obviously, you, you'd seen it from the other side, but being on the distribution side, what was the biggest learning curve for you? Um, probably just learning enough about the wines to talk about them with, you know, accuracy and knowledge and depth and. Um, and 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 I think you know being lucky enough to go to go to Italy several more times and throughout the years just to have boots on the ground and just to learn about it. Um, I just wanted that. That's what it really was. So the first the first uh, couple of years was just completely diving into just knowing as much as I could about them, and um, and the trips really really helped a lot. And so then when I could go walk into an account. Um, you know, they trusted me. They tr they trusted the fact that I had been there, mm -hmm. and that I had personal stories about about being in the, in the vineyards and being with the winemakers and 
um, yeah, so they that was uh, it gave people confidence that that they uh, that they're happy to bring those wines in and and that they were going to do well. You mentioned stories there, and I think that's such an interesting part of of the of sort of the wine sales side is is the story. So, tell me what stories you found attracted you to a wine, and what stories you found sold wine well. Sometimes it would be uh, family related. It would be you know, maybe uh, how a family worked so hard for so many generations in the, in the, in the, you know, just cultivating it and building this um, uh, amazing vineyard. Um, sometimes it could be, it could, be, you know, some, sometimes it was just uh, people's enthusiasm about the wines uh, and, um, but you know, I mean, a, a, a lot of it was was actually being able to travel uh, to those places and and spend time with them and get to and get to learn like what they loved about their wine. And and everywhere you go in Italy, there's always it's always like we have the best food, we have the best wine. <laughs> Each place, they're very territorial, um, you know. But the whole place is magical, and and so. It's really fun to have learn what each person's different perspective, and then I could kind of relate that to a person's wine list and see where there's holes that they could, you know, might be missing that might be a good fit for them, and um, and and then you know share stories about, uh, you know, like for instance, um, there's a really fabulous producer. Her name is Bruna Grimaldi. Is Bruna Grimaldi? She's uh, she's in Saralunga d'Alba, which is in between Alba and Barolo. And um, one year, I can't remember which trip it was, but one year I, she, they'd scheduled a tasting and a lunch for me. And um, her 80-year-old mother had got up really early to make up make this special lunch for for us. And and it's a dish called agnolotti. And there's just basically just roll out pasta, and you take some meats and some vegetables, and you puree them, and then you pipe them into these tiny little pieces that you roll up. I mean, they're tiny, tiny little like miniature ravioli, right? And it's traditionally served in the brodo, which is like half chicken stock and half beef stock. Um, so it's just like pasta floating in this broth with dusted with Parmesan Reggiano. And she had made, and it's probably to this day probably the best pasta that I've ever eaten. And to be like made by this this little eighty year old woman just for me that day was a very 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 special time. That that, that was something that'll always be with me. Yeah. So and and tell and so when I'm telling you know buyers at restaurants like you know stories like that, it's just endearing and it's just really it's you know it's beautiful and I don't have to I never I never had to feel like I had to like fake anything or you know I could just I could just be like true and honest and and you know just give real real information and just and and be like uh i don't know just built i think i think it built trust with uh with people and and trust is is everything when building relationships with accounts so flip over to the production side a little bit now you you talked about your first production and just just sort of randomly showing up at dickie rath's winery which is it's a pretty great, pretty great way to start. Uh, tell me about your first impressions of the work of wine production. What what your first first harvest was like? 
<clears throat> well, I mean, I'd, I'd never done anything like that before. Um, so it was really exciting to, to see, like, you know, everybody on the line, everybody just, you know, picking out leaves and picking out sticks. And I'm just like, you know, this is exciting, you know. And so, like, years and years later, I'm not, now I'm like, oh, we got to process this fruit. But, but it's still fun. It's the, there's still something cool about it just because it's yours, it's your baby, it's your, this is your, you know, I, I want to make sure that everything is, is, is clean and is, you know, I'm trying to make the best wine that I can and so I want it to be perfect and look good. Um, uh, but that first time, I had this overwhelming, like, after we were finished, they, they would go down and get us burgers at Lumpy's or something. Uh, right down the street on the main strip through Bur D Dundee or whatever it was, pizza, and I don't know. It was just um, it was a lot of work, and we and that first year wasn't like I said wasn't paid. They'd give us some free wine, um, which I still have a few bottles of those. I've got some O2 Leland and, and O2 Prince Hill from Erath, which is pretty awesome. But um, I just had this like feeling like I'd really did something. Like I really accomplished. Like I, like I, you know, I had my hand, my hands are dirty. I was tired. My back hurt, but I felt awesome. I just felt like you know I'd really done something, something that was going to come to fruition in a couple of years, and and was going to become this beautiful bottle that was made with such collective effort and and hard work and 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 passion and joy. And I still find it, to this day, exhilarating. I mean, it's hard work. It's 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 really funny when you get into it, and, and I'll have friends like volunteer. They'll come in, or you know, friends of friends will come in, and they're like, "This is hard." Like, yeah, I was like, "Yeah, you put in a lot of work. Like, it's a very compacted, super hard like month and a half of of uh, not a lot of sleep." You know. It's like having a baby once a year. You know, you just you're not you don't sleep at all for a month, the first month and a half, and you just work really really hard and yeah, but it's um it's it's really really worth it. Obviously, by the time you you were working, starting to work into production and starting to think about your own label, you had an idea in mind of what kind of wine you wanted to make. So tell me about the the steps along the way in production, all all your different mentors of, of figuring out how you would make the wine you wanted to make, how you would go about creating this wine that you had in your mind? Um, well, the first, I mean, as I conceptualized, you know, the idea of, of actually making it, I think it kind of was, I, I, knew, I knew for sure that I wanted to make it something old world. I, I know everyone talks about, oh, I, I want a sense of place. And I get that. And I mean, that's especially so important in Oregon. Um, you know, I, I can really, I love being able to taste a Pinot Noir from Chehalem Mountains or taste a Pinot Noir that, that, that I know is, is Red Hills or, you know, be able to taste something that without doubt is Eola Amity. Like, you know, that's... That's that's really truly the beauty of of, uh, of terroir, um, and the, and I think a sense of place is extremely important. It really is. Um, where I get the the fruit, though, and I mean, Walla Walla is typically known for being relatively big and and heavy and higher alcohol and concentrated 
profiles and and you know a lot of phenolics and just uh, a big big wines but I didn't really want to do that um, so I, I I think that you know loving Italian wine so much um, I just decided I, I really really I really want to try to to my my goal and my mantra and still is is to take you know new world fruit and make as old world wine as I can, and I think that that came from you know my years at Genoa and my years um, working with different winemakers um, and my years with Casa Bruno and you know just falling in love with that style and falling in love with that profile. Um, you know, Barbaresco is probably to the to this day I think my favorite wine in the world. Um, I mean, they say that all palates like lead to to Burgundy, um, and maybe that's true, but I'm still kind of stuck in Italy. But um, I don't know. I love it. I love it. you know the main the main one. I think I think what really did it it was was my 2000 and. Yeah, it was my 2010 trip to um, Tuscany and Umbria. And I went and visited a, a producer that we sold in the book at Casa Bruno, and they still sell it. It's called uh, Felsina, and Felsina is like um, one, of the, one of the most extraordinary uh, wineries in all of Italy. They've actually won Winery of the Year in Italy, so if you imagine how many wineries are there, that's kind of a big deal. The award is Trebicere, and uh, means three glasses. And they have more. Um, they have more. Of, uh, the only other person that has more three glass awards over all these years is is, is Gaia. Um, Felsina is 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 second. And so they're in. Um, they're about 15 kilometers east of Siena. So in the, if you look at like Florence here and Siena's here. This whole area is the Chianti Classico, so that gets the the black rooster, the Galoniero, and then this this side's the Colle Senese, so that's like you know those two two main parts of Chianti's several different Chianti zones, but those are really the two main. And they're the very very southern tip of that, as far as you can go south and still get the black rooster. And so I visited them, and their wines were just like. It was like, um, like I told Michael Alred, it's just like if, 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 if wine, if cherries had the ability to rust, it was just like that was the nose and it was just so insane and, and, and powerful and dense. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to really try to come as close as I could to, to re, re, you know, recreate that. So it's like, it took, you know, years um, to try to figure out like how they did it and, and I had to ask a lot of questions, and I even remember one my uh, a subsequent uh, visit. I, I, a couple years after that, they've got a really really old uh, part of the cellar which dates to the 1500s, and and the smell is insane. Like you you can go in there and it just just all the years of the wine and and you know wine on the floor and bottles breaking and you know everything just and just this you can smell like the mother you can smell like that's why they don't inoculate their wine because they don't have to because it has a mother living there um, and and I was actually like going behind the barrels like trying to scratch my fingers on the walls trying to get some of the yeast or something 
I don't know if it worked, but anyway, I put it in a bag and I brought it home. I don't know. But I tried. Um, but yeah, they, they were amazing. They were the ones that really made me decide that's, that's what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the best Sangiovese that I can. And I just love the grape. I mean, Sangiovese is one of the few grapes in the world that, ha that has like, the ability to be like, feminine and masculine at the same time. You know, there's, there's a backbone to it, there's major structure and tannin to it, but there's also an elegance and a brightness and, and, a, and kind of a lifted component to it, which makes it such an amazing grape. And, I mean, they loved it. They've been growing that grape since before the Romans. I mean, the Etruscans grew it. Um, I mean, <clears throat> it means the blood of Jupiter, so Sangio, blood and and Vese, Hove, Jovi, and Jove. So it's a, the you know they love it so much they named it after the blood of their god. So that's got to be something there. Big shoes to fill to to, fill, to clear that bar. Uh, tell me about learning to work with it after. I assume I mean much of your experience uh, harvest experience would have been with Pinot, obviously very different beasts. So tell me about learning to learning to work with Sangiovese. So when you're when you're trying to get fruit out of the vineyard, you're always looking for the you know you're really wanting everything to kind of come together at the same time. That's that's the that's the magic moment, right? That's when you want to okay, let's do it, let's pick it, let's get it in, let's process it, and let's crush it. And and so to do that, you're really looking for you know several components. I mean, obviously the bricks, you know the the sugar levels and and the pH is going to be extremely important. Um, and what your TA is, you know, what your titratable acidity is, but also flavor development. And so that's the thing. It's like a finicky grape where, y you know, the bricks can just shoot up and your pH is, 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 is threatening dropping out the, of the bottom. But, you know, your flavor profile isn't, still isn't quite there yet. You know, so there's, if there's a, a lot of variables that take place until where you're like, okay, I think it's time. And so it usually comes in kind of later. It takes a while for it to ripen all the way. Um, my very first vintage, I did not uh, get fruit until Halloween day, the 31st. Yeah, since that is insane. Very late. So, um, and it's always late. It's always the last to do everything. It's, it's always the last to get picked it's always the last um to and i think ultimately that's because i i'm i'm trying to i mean i can you can manipulate the numbers a little bit if you have to but i try not to i've i've always tried to never capitalize and add sugar i've tried to not have to do acid additions i mean i'm really trying to get trying as much as possible to make the wine in the vineyard before i get the fruit that's that's the that's to me the best and that's why my wine fluctuates a little bit because I don't build a common denominator. I don't do any finding or filtering. Um, I, my wine changes a little bit per vintage because that's what the year gave you. That's what we, you know, and I think that that's kind of, I mean, there's a lot of winemakers out there that are, I would say are more like wine sculptors. Like they, they're manipulating the wine to make a, a constant, you know, product which is, gonna, which is going to be what the consumer expects. And there's there's a common thread with my wines, so it's not like my I, I have drastically you know different profile in every vintage. There's always uh, that common thread of of old world, 
Um, but there's, you know, there's slight changes. Some are a little lighter, some are a little bit heavier, some have a tiny bit more alcohol, some are very low. Um, just kind of depends on the on the on the vintage. But it really is made in 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 the vineyard, and um, I think that's probably the most important part. But um, with that said. It's also, I don't inoculate for um, malolactic, and I know that's kind of a popular thing to do this, these, you know, these days, but I think it's really important just to like, it's, it's scary because, because your wine's not protected. Because if you put SO2, if you put sulfur dioxide into it, that's instantly gonna kill your mallow. And so people are very afraid to just leave their wine exposed. Um, but, Doing that, I think, really helps to contribute to to the mouthfeel and the texture and what makes things to be a little bit more old world. So, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I finally had my 2022 finished Mallow, and um, and had no choice but in the heat of the day to uh, to rack all the barrels off and clean all the barrels out, get the lees out, get the dead yeast cells out, and um, clean the barrels and put it back in and. And now they're happy and they're just gonna chill in the barrel for another year. That happened in June? Yeah. That's crazy. So obviously you, you kind of, you worked through production for a while, you had, you had a number of mentors, a number of people helping you along the way. Uh, tell me about the first time when it was your grapes and your, your name and your decisions. Tell me about making, making the decisions for your first vintage. Yeah, so as much as I love Dick, um, uh, Dick Boucher, almost said Erath. Uh, Dick Boucher's fruit. Um, I love the guy, him and his wife. They're just such beautiful people and such hard workers, amazing farmers. Um, oh, much, much respect, always. Um, he, he really, though, has um, a lot more of a, I'd say, a demand for like his Syrah and his cab. And those are also like, you know, definitely make him a higher premium, make more, more money. Um, and so sometimes I wasn't able to totally control like when I'd be able to get the fruit in a little bit. And so sometimes the bricks would be a little bit higher than I wanted them to be. Um, which means that you just, once in a while you have to, I mean, it's just, it is, it's the nature of the business. Once in a while you have to, to add some, some more, you know, JUs to the, to the fermenters what we call JUs, Jesus units, water. And um, yeah, and so sometimes I had, I had to do that because it was the bricks were like, you know, 25 and a half and 26. So um, it wasn't until really 2018 that um, I got to work more, a lot more closely with Dan Thiessen of, of and, and his spot is in Mission Hills and um, and it's really just it's really great fruit, you know. And he was working with a different um, uh, vineyard manager at the time, and I kind of told them like like you know what I wanted. And then the the eighteen it came out nice, um, but I think that the vineyard manager left, and so he got a new guy that came in, and so so then the nineteen wasn't totally exactly where I wanted it. Um, and then in 20, he found somebody, someone else, and, and to my knowledge, that's the person that he's still working with now. And now, now they know exactly what I want. Now I can build like, you know, contracts 
and say this is what I'd like. This is you know, but it's it's always you know you're still dealing with. Uh, an area which can sometimes have late frosts and wipe out, you know, 30% of the production, or have hailstorms come through, and so there's there's just a lot of uh, you know, mother nature, you know, variables that um, you can you can hope for what you you can pray and hope for what you really you know want to get it in in the end, but you know some, sometimes that's not going to be necessarily exactly what you want. But with that said, it's um, um, it's nice now to he we're on the same page. He knows exactly what I'm trying to do, and he's and he's uh, they're trying to honor that and produce the the very best possible fruit that they can, so that I can try to achieve my goals. Talk about starting the label, <clears throat> about coming up with name and design, and and starting to figure out uh, how to sell it. And this another, another person that I, I sold, uh, in, in Casa Runo's book, his name is John Groshaw and he has a, um, a wine called Groshaw Cellars GC. I don't know if you know John, but, uh, okay. Yeah. He's a really good dude and I love him. Um, in, in early 2010, we were just like going around. I think I took him out to the coast actually. Um, at the time, my family, we had a beach house um, out, out in Pacific City, so that would be like the stop-off point um, when I would finish my day, and then I could stay there and get up and come back to Portland. So that worked out pretty well. But I think we were on a trip together, and we were just visiting markets. We were, you know, working the market together. Um, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about maybe get into the, getting into this a little bit. Uh, what do you, like, what do you think? What do you, how did you, how did you do it? You know, and so he told me, well, I, he just like, I, I pestered some friends and family and, and said, if you give me like, you know, hundred bucks or something, I'll give you a case of wine when it's done. And I'm like, that's genius. <laughs> and so I, so I said, okay, I'm gonna, so I, I completely, my first vintage was modeled 100% after John Groshaw and, um, and so that's what I did, and, and in fact, that's because he did that. His very first wine was called the, his uh, Cuvée des Amis, which is the wine of my friends, and that's why he paid, you know, homage to, to to his friends and family. So that's what I did, and so then I had to come up with a label, though, and um, I wanted it to be something cool, something you know that was similar to. I mean, I really wanted I, I wanted to honor the grape because I love Sangiovese so much. I thought, well, um, <clears throat> maybe I will name it, have something to do with with, with you know Sangiovese or something or Jupiter. Um, and so Jupiter is my favorite planet. And so, but the problem is, is everything that has anything to do with Jupiter is already taken. It's already a winery or a brewery or something. I mean, even the major moons like Ganymede and Europa and Io and Callisto, like they are all wineries. So, and I, I don't want to name my wine like like 27A-6, which I think is one of the other moons. Um, so I didn't, so I didn't know what to name it. And, and then I just thought, well, John was, he's okay with his name on it. I guess maybe I could just use my name. Um, so I just decided to go with co-sellers, and that's how it happened. And then the crest that's on my label is actually um, my family's crest dating back to the 
uh, 16th century in Sussex, England. And the earliest that we can go back, I guess, is a guy named John Coe, who went to go, went to Italy and fought in some wars in in Italy, and was very successful and came back to Sussex and and ended up uh, um, uh, being granted knight a knighthood and was given a lot of land and and so I guess it was very prominent and so he was had his own crest and his own family crest and. Um, and I just decided to use that because I thought it just gave the label an old school, kind of older world look. And so that's what I went with. Always nice to have a family crest lying around for such, such situations like that. Thanks, John. <laughs> Talk about selling wine. Obviously, you had a lot of experience selling wine, but now you're selling your own wine. Uh, how is it different? People only there's a lot of wine out there, and people only have so much room on their list and stuff. And 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 you know, in some accounts it doesn't make as much sense for. But um, you know, as I touched on a little bit earlier, um, building those you know building those relationships over all those years, I think really was beneficial to being able to get my foot in the door to places and having them try it um, and and be like. Rather than feel obligated because they know me, you know, they try it and they're like, it's actually good. They're like, thank God. They're like, we, we, we would have had to come up with some terrible excuse to not, to not get your wine if it sucked. Um, but uh, luckily, it, it, it turned out that it, it is pretty, pretty good. People seem to like it. And, um, um, and so that was, uh, that's good for me. Um, but yeah, it just, um, uh, it was it was hard, I think, with COVID. That really kind of interrupted the whole flow a little bit because it was so difficult. Most of my wine was being sold to restaurants, and obviously there wasn't a whole lot of restaurants happening during that time. So for a couple of years, that was um, that was a difficulty. Um, I don't have a lot of retail presence, and retail was exploding. Like, like before, like it's never been seen. Numbers like that were never been, never been seen. So, retail was going crazy. But um, I just, I still had a bunch of uh, loyal customers that I was still able to, you know, especially out on the coast from all those accounts that I serviced for eight years, um, were really gracious and 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 kept buying, you know, even when they weren't sure if the restaurant was going to stay open or not. Did you find that? Making Sangiovese specifically was an advantage in terms of kind of scarcity, or was it a disadvantage in terms of people not necessarily looking for Sangiovese in Oregon? Well, I think that um, for some, you know, uh, Oregon, because of the fact that there's been so many, th there was some laws that were passed back in the day to where you know you could the. Multiple distributors couldn't sell this, the the same wine, right? And and there was a lot of there was a lot of distributors that were wanting to bring in Italian stuff, and so all of a sudden the market became flooded with like a lot of Italian wine. And to this day, Portland sells more Italian wine. Well, actually, it, it, it the, it's insane the amount of Italian wine that's that's sold per capita. Um, the only city in the entire United States that sells more Italian wine per capita is New York. Portland is number two, um, so there's a there's a there's like a real demand for um, Italian wine in this in this 
in the metro area, and um, I think people get it. They have, a, I think, they have a little bit more refined palates. I think in this area because it is a, a wine growing, you know, viticultural area, and and people love the the Pinot, and people, but but people also at the same time like really love wines that are really good with food, and. And Sangiovese is like one of those grapes. It's like one of those wines that's just, it makes, makes the food better, the, the food makes the wine better. It's just the, the true definition of the marriage of the two. You, you mentioned obviously COVID and the, and the pandemic. Uh, what, were the, what were the kind of, in, your kind of initial reactions during 2020 um, as you were kind of figuring out what to do with your brand and how, did, how have you sort of come out the other side of that? Well, I mean, for a while there, there was just a lot of uncertainty. I mean, I, 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 but at the same time, I kind of thought, well, the chances of this, I mean, I, I, I guess I was kind of like looking at the 1918, you know, bird flu, or the Spanish flu, rather. Um, I was looking at those stats and, and seeing like, you know, how long that kind of lived out, and that was basically about three years. And it seemed like this was like a relatively like similar situation virus-wise and mortality-wise. So I figured, keep doing it because if I was to take a break and not make a wine for a vintage, um, it would really hurt because it, you know they would break that financial cycle and then it'd almost just be like starting over again. But I figured that there would be a demand that it would end and there, there, the demand would be there. So just keep doing it, keep making it. So I just I, I borrowed money and did what I had to do to keep doing it. No, knowing knowing that the the you know the demand would be there once we s finally came out of of the lockdown. You know, but there was some uncertainty there for a while, for sure. The first year was very surreal, just crazy. With your unique, unique perspective, how have you seen the restaurant scene come back from COVID? Well, um, I mean, the city lost a lot of restaurants. Um, a lot of the really great ones didn't make it. You know, and um, so I think we're still seeing, we're still seeing like that evolution. Um, I, it's just going to take some time uh, to see uh, as the dust kind of settles. Um, I think that with the riots and everything that was going on and, and the pandemic, like it was just a, I, you know, downtown just got really hit really hard. And, um, and it still is, it's still recovering. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty awful in some places, but you can see signs of like, you know, people put, you know, putting their storefront out there, getting, you know, even opening up a new place and, you know, just trying, trying to make the effort to, um, uh, to, to keep the scene going. And um, <clears throat> I think that we have such a heritage here for, for amazing food. Um, you know, having James Beard growing up in, you know, Gearhart and teaching at Reed College and, um, you know, just all the, the fantastic restaurants that, that, that we do have, a lot of them held on and a lot of them were able to make it. And, and so I think we're seeing, you know, um, we're, we're seeing things rise from the, the ashes and, and I think the future is hopeful. You mentioned earlier that you've kind of had a shift in terms of kind of going all in towards the brand. So tell me about how that 
how that realization has sort of played out for you so far as you're trying to ramp up production and, and how the sort of you're seeing the next year or so play out for yourself? Well, that's the, that's a great question. Um, I guess it's a, to be determined a little bit, but, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm hopeful. I think that the demand's gonna be there for sure. Um, but I know that I wanna commit to this. I wanna commit to, to upping my production. I think it's, um, you know, after just having it be kind of like a, a, a side hustle for, for so many years, that it's really, really time to, to just do it full time. I mean, it's just, uh, there's a there's a demand for it. I sell out of everything every single year. Um, I, I, I you know I think that this is definitely the the direction that the universe is pointing me. Um, so I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go in with an open heart and 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 um, hope that um, when the time comes, because I will have a lot more wine. Um, that I can just, you know, build more accounts. I'll start, have to start going in places that I don't know and I don't have relationships with. Um, and, and, and slowly restart to, to build, you know, build new relationships and as a, as a new generation of, of uh, entrepreneurs and restaurateurs, like, you know, um, make a go of, of their, their hopes and dreams. What else are you looking, sort of looking ahead to for the future, for your future or for the future of the brand? I would like to definitely expand things a little bit. I I started actually in 2019 making a new um, wine, and so you're probably familiar with this, but there probably there's a lot of people that aren't. Uh, but there's there is a wine in in, um, in Tuscany called a Super Tuscan, and so. Um, a Super Tuscan is, is um, well, there's several variables there, but basically, for the most part, it started back in the 70s with like Antonori, and those guys made a wine called uh, Tignallo. And the Tignallo was like um, a blend of Sangiovese and Cabernet. So the government, in order to, you, you'll see stickers on, on Italian, you know, bottles that they'll say the DOC, which is a government, you know, guaranteeing that it's from this spot. And even a step further, um, a DOCG, um, which is the 100%. This is from this this, this site. Um, but if you ever change like the varietals that you use, or the amount of oak that it sees, um, or how long it's in barrels, or any anything that steps out of the guidelines that they set, um, then it has to be just a regular table wine, like they call it IGT. So they coined the term uh, Super Tuscan. Mostly, I think it was to cater to a Western palate that typically gravitated towards a, a, a bigger, heavier wine. And so that's where it was born. And I decided I, I wanted to kind of like build my, you know, portfolio a little bit, have something else to, to, to offer. So I have my regular Sangiovese, and now I'm making this super, well, it's really a super Washington. Um, but, but I've got, um, I, I picked my fa favorite barrel of Sangiovese and, my, and, and then I, I made Cab for the first time, uh, which was a whole different animal, which was kind of fun though. And, um, and so yeah, I, I, I blended it and, and my 19 is, is it's, I only sell it out of the tasting room. I only made two barrels, I made 50 cases, so it's a very, very small amount. Uh, but I bought more last year, so I have a lot more Cab. 
I also bought Cab Franc and I bought Petit Verdot. So I've made all these new varietals that I've never made before. So there's, there's new things coming out. Um, I'm excited to maybe do a white as well. I would like to try to work with some Italian white like Arnaise or Vermentino or uh, Favorita or some, something um, because I want to offer more in our tasting room than just like one wine. You know, especially as, as I look towards the future of trying to build up a wine club and, you know, um, I think it's always going to be important to sell wine to restaurants and to wine shops and I'll always keep doing that. Um, but the DTC, the direct-to-consumer sales, is really where it's at. Um, that's how these wineries build, you know, $12 million tasting rooms is because they're selling direct to these people. And they're cutting out the middlemen and they're making all the money and that's, that's the best margin, of course. But yeah, so I'm hopefully going to have a little bit. I did try making rosé in 2019 and it wasn't very successful. I'd never done it before. Um, and it was for the wrong reasons, <laughs> because typically if you're going to make pretty good rosé, like really good rosé, you want to go out and pick it a little early when the bricks are lower and the acid's higher. Um, but our destemmer was not, it was not behaving well, and it was kicking out a ton of fruit out the back of it, which is not good. That's just so much money lost. And so I actually collected it, and I put it in the bladder, I put it in the press, and I just pressed it off and made a rosé with it. But it was just too, you know, it didn't have enough acid, and I didn't release it commercially. But that was 2019, and my last name is Co. So I did, I, I only made like maybe 40 cases of it. Um, my friends drank most of it. Um, but ones that I did give away as presents, you know, just for people to have, I just hand wrote on the bottles, COVID-19. And uh, yeah, so, but I'm not sure if the TTB would approve that. They don't generally have a great sense of humor for labels, I've noticed, but that's, that's pretty good. You mentioned all those new varietals. Tell me about learning to work with, with new grapes. Did you feel fairly confident dealing with uh, sort of the different styles? Yeah, because the guy that I work with um, at Adega Northwest, his name's Bradford Cowan, and, and um, he's really great. He's he's very uh, talented winemaker. I've uh, learned a lot from him, being with him over the years too. And um, he um, he has a Solera system. He has like, the I think this is probably the biggest his port is insane. Um, he makes he has the biggest solar system on the entire West Coast, as far as I know. So he's got some really great ports that he's getting ready to come out with. Um, but he just you know he he focuses he makes like Cab and Cab Franc and Petit Verdot and he makes you know um, he makes a lot of different kinds of wines, um, both Rhone Valley stuff and Bordeaux style stuff. Um, so you know just kind of watching him do it over the years and. Um, seeing like what kind of techniques like he would he would do with his and bleeding off some of the some of the you know like Sanye like bleeding off some stuff to concentrate the skins ratio versus the must and things like that you know so yeah it was it was kind of fun to watch him um, uh, it was a different animal to actually do it myself um, but I, I tend to gravitate towards like trying to let things go natural yeast fermentation I, I, I really prefer that. Um, and you don't really know what that means. I mean, yeah, there could be some yeast that comes in off of the, the vineyard, but your forklift might have inoculated your vineyard, your vintage that year, you know, 
whatever yeast is on, you know. So a lot of times my stuff, uh, there's other people in the, in the space and they've got active fermentations going on so that will also inoculate fermenters. Um, and um, yeah, so, and that's actually kind of interesting. I, I never really too much thought about it, but I think part of the reason that my, my wine has like a little bit of a lighter, um, kind, of, kind of lifted, brighter kind of uh, aspect to it is those early vintages that I made at, at Holleran with Mark Lagasse. Um, since I mentioned earlier that my Sangiovese was always last, um, their fermenters, their Pinot fermenters were going crazy. And so my Sangiovese was getting inoculated with Pinot Noir which was kind of interesting. And so maybe there's a reason why that, that gave it a little bit of that, that aspect. But anyway, um, typically, yeah, like I said, um, you know, let it go through natural yeast fermentation. There have been times, though, where a fermenter will get too funky. And, and so then I will, I, will, I will hit it with um, like a yeast strain. Like but mo most of the time, my fermenters go, go wild. Um, uh, and, but the Sangiovese that I have is actually the clone is Sangiovese Grosso, so it's the same exact clone that they used to make Brunello. Um, and so I will use like a BM45 or something that's specifically designed for Brunello. If if a fermenter starts to get too funky, then I then I need to um, kick it back. If it's if it's if it's giving off like too much e, you know EA or or any kind of you know volatile acidity stuff, it's uh, I'll, I'll definitely hit it. Want to try to stay within the threshold and not make make something too funky. How have you seen, uh, kind of broadening out a little bit here, how have you seen the Oregon wine industry <clears throat> sort of grow and change in the time you've been involved with it or aware of it? Well, you know, I mean, it's just amazing having people like David Lett and, and grow, you know, starting in 1966, and then you got people coming in like Dick Erath and and and, uh, and and Ponzi and all those guys. I mean, you know, they really put the stuff on the map. And then and then of course, you know, the, the, the winning all those awards in France and everything. And just you know, it's really fun. It's 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 cool to to have the notoriety that this is like one of the best places in the world to make wine, and you know, specifically Pinot Noir. Um, so that's been great. But it's. It's, it's been really nice to see like how many more younger people have been getting involved and 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 seeing their take on 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 wines and I know there's been like a big natural wine movement and stuff um, uh, that's been going on for a while as well but I just think that that um, having the foundation of such a great Iconic, you know, iconic place to, to, to make wine, and using that as a foundation to to expand and, and and blossom and try different things and try out you know different styles and techniques and varietals. Um, you know, I think I think the world is 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 being really receptive to that because I think we've earned a spot in in, in as being very respected. You know, that we're not just like you know. We're, we're, we're not, uh, I think for a long time we were thought of as, as, as um, you know, back in the 70s for sure, 60s, 70s, as, as a lesser inferior sort of, you know, growing area. But um, that's just, 
it's just not true anymore. And 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 I think the world's ready to to to, to embrace all the wines that we're making. So what comes next for the industry? Where do you see it going from here? I would like to see for sure. Um, you know, a, a younger generation getting into wine and appreciating wine. Um, it seems like it kind of oscillates a little bit, and there's, there's, and now with, with you know, marijuana, you know, being legalized, it's, it's. Um, I don't know. Pe people have sort of this, this, um, a certain amount of money, this like pie that they, that they can put towards. You know, beer or wine or 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 marijuana or blah blah. blah. So there's just a you know certain amount of money for that, and so it all it all impacts the industry. Um, uh, but I would like to definitely see people appreciate the marriage of food and wine, and and have younger people get in into into wine and really really appreciate it because that's the only thing that's going to keep the industry moving forward. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? No, I think that's pretty good. I think we we talked about a lot of stuff. I I'm um, I'm honored. Thank you to to be part of this, and I really appreciate your you guys's um, help and time. And and um, it it'll be interesting to to see like um, what happens in the future regarding my brand and. You know, to like look back on this, in you know, ten years from now, and and see what I've got going on. I think that the the ride will be fun, and it'll be exciting to look back at the old footage and and see what happens. You know, because um, the there's a lot going on. I mean, with the climate change, and I know people are are you know. I know some winemakers are looking around, you know, areas around Seattle to grow Pinot Noir and 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 Canada and you know, um, so there's a lot there's a lot of variables. There's a lot there's lots happening with global warming and uh, climate change is going to become a major issue. Um, so hopefully, maybe winemaking will be one of the facets that uh, that that helps people realize, you know, we need to do something. And do it now to protect our future, you know, because I don't want to have our grandkids be tending Tempranillo vines at the Arctic Circle. So, you know, let's take care of the planet. Well, thank you, and thank you for thank you for your kind words there. We appreciate you taking the time yeah. to share your story with us and make the trip out here, and uh, we'll let you off the hook. Cool. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.